All right. So uh, I will open us in prayer. Okay. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place. We thank you for one another. And we especially thank you for your word. And we pray that uh, as we gather as your people around your word, uh, that you would speak to us uh, with clarity, that you would speak to us with power, and that we would be open and receptive and obedient to what you say to us. I pray that you would show us what we need to see and that you would help us to apply uh, what we need to do. And uh, we thank you so much that you are a God who speaks and that we don't have to figure out our own way, uh, but we have only to listen and to learn and, and to trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 to 16 is our focus tonight. And here's the question I want to begin with. What makes Jesus happy? What makes Jesus happy? How would you complete that thought? And there's not just one right answer. There's one answer we're going to focus on tonight, but... There are a variety of answers. What makes Jesus happy? And, and you, you might imagine if someone could take a stethoscope and apply it to Jesus' heart, what makes Jesus' heart beat more rapidly and, and, and strong? What makes Jesus happy? Anything come to mind? Oh, I am. Just wait. Oh, I am. <laughs> But, but just, just what comes to mind, if you were to think about that? When people respond to what he was preaching, yes, yeah. Yes, or posit, respond positively, yes. A surrendered life makes him happy, indeed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Changing the direction of your life, yep. Relationship, being in relationship with him. Devotion. Uh-huh. Honoring him as God. Uh-huh. Anything else? Okay, thanking him for who he is, being thankful, yeah. Yep. Well, you're all right. Uh, <laughs> all those things, indeed, do make uh, Jesus happy, uh, and we know that not just because we think it, because you can back up every one of the things that we've said with Scripture. Um, but there's one angle on this that we might be more surprised about, that we don't emphasize as much. And so before we get to Hebrews 4, I want to start with this a quotation from a Puritan writer named Thomas Goodwin. Here's how he answers. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members 
here on earth. Christ's own joy is enlarged and magnified in showing mercy. So we tend to think when, when we get it right, that's when Jesus is happy. And indeed, he is. He wants us to be obedient. He, and we honor him. We're thankful to him. He is happy. But we don't think about the fact that he's happy when he gets to show mercy. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is what he came to do to save sinners. And so I put it like this. Jesus' heart beats for sinners who repent, for those who come to him, who turn to him for help. He delights in showing mercy and grace. And I think coming to a greater understanding of that will in turn lead us to be more joyful and more committed to turning to him, to letting him heal. And here's the image that's, that's given uh, in, in Ortland's book that I think is helpful. Imagine, imagine a physician, a doctor, goes to um, a, a primitive place and these people are afflicted by a particular disease and this doctor is independently wealthy, so this doctor can, can come. He doesn't need any kind of uh, pay from them to do this, but he has the antibodies that they need to live. And so he goes and he lets them know, Here, here's the remedy. And so many of them think they can heal themselves or they can try something else or there, there's something that they can come up with that's going to heal them. And imagine the disappointment. He's come all the way to provide this medicine to treat this disease. But then a few brave souls decide, let's try it, and they come forward. And he's able to provide the remedy and the treatment to them so they experience healing. That kind of joy, the joy, that's why he came. He came to heal them, and he wants them to admit they're sick and to come to him with their sickness. That's an illustration of the joy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at Hebrews 4 to see why it is that that gives him so much joy. And it comes down to who he is. So let's read uh, beginning at verse 14. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All right. So, in looking at these three verses, verse 15 is really the anchor. Notice the four. The four is building off of verse 14. We can hold, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. 
Likewise, verse 16 builds off of verse 15 with the then. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So two exhortations, two commands. Uh, The first, to hold firmly, to hold firmly to the faith we profess. The second, to approach God's throne of grace with confidence, all grounded in verse 15. And verse 15 shows us not only what Jesus came to do, but who Jesus is, his heart. And what we need to emphasize is his solidarity with us, his total solidarity with with us. But to understand that, we need to know about the biblical teaching of the priesthood, what what is the role of a priest Um, so in ancient Israel, they had kings and they had priests. Um, uh, you can, got it? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so uh, you can think of the king. So the king is the one with the authority in ancient Israel and the king is representing God to the people. The people know, are, they're reminded of God's authority because they have this human authority standing over them, the king. With the priest, it's more about representing the people to God, standing between God and the people. And this is why the priest is the one who offers the sacrifices for the sins of the people. And in ancient Israel, you don't have to read very far to see that they're all sinners too. And so they also are offering sacrifices for their own sins. But the writer of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to the priesthood and yet showing how Jesus is the great high priest. He's the priest that surpasses all other priests because unlike those other priests, he never sinned. But he is in a position to represent the people to God because he was and he is fully human fully human, without ceasing to be fully divine. One person, two natures. And it's, it's probably also important to emphasize when we talk about his happiness, we talk about his comfort, enlarging, being increased, um, we're referring especially to his, his human nature. God has no weakness. It's Jesus' human nature that experiences weakness, right? Um, Okay, so he is the great high priest representing the people to God. And what is more, he is not unable to empathize with our weaknesses. And your translation may say sympathize. Um, yeah. um, I would prefer sympathize. Sympathize is a little more um, literal to the Greek here. But we need to bear in mind, when we say the word sympathy, we mean something a little different. We typically mean kind of a detached sorrow or pity, I'm, I'm sorry for you. But the, the word here is, the, is a um, two-part word, and the first part means literally with and suffering, suffering with someone. So Jesus is our co-sufferer, our 
co-sufferer. He is in full solidarity with his people. There is an unrestrained witness that Jesus has with his people. And to go back to the doctor imagery, uh, he is the doctor who brings the remedy, but there's a sense in which he's also had the disease. Not the, not the sin, he's, he's without sin, but he knows what it is to be weak. He, he knows what it is to experience the symptoms of living in a fallen, sinful world. And this is vitally important because we might think of Jesus or treat Jesus as a Superman figure instead of a man. We may think that Jesus is somebody that should be on the cover of, of men's health, right? And he's not. He's a normal dude and came to save ordinary, normal people like you and like me. Not a Superman, just a man. And everything that we experience that, that reminds us of our weakness, he endured. He endured full solidarity with us. So, remember the two exhortations, to hold firmly to the faith we profess and to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So, what is it about his solidarity with us that should enable us to then hold firmly and to approach with confidence? How is that an encouragement to us? If he's for us, who can be against us? Right. We have the great high priest on our side. Right. He has, he has ascended into heaven, which is to say he has endured all of human weakness, and yet he conquered it. And now he's in a place, he's in heaven, where none of that can touch him anymore. He, the, the world and all the evil of the world did its worst to him. He conquered it, and now none of that can touch him anymore. He is in an untouchable place in heaven, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, which is, which is imagery to say he, the work is finished. He can sit down. He's done, he's done that job. He can sit down at the right hand of God the Father. Okay, so there's great encouragement in that. Yep. Absolutely, yes, yes. But I think a lot of times when we're going through something painful or difficult, and, and we're not talking about our sin, we're going to get to our sin, but when, when life is just really hard because of circumstances that we're going through, we're passing through a season of adversity, that often makes us feel isolated, does it not? We think, I'm going through this thing, and there's nobody that knows what it's like to go through this. There's just nobody. I'm all alone. And this is where we need to remember, actually, there is someone, Jesus. Jesus is in full solidarity with us. He does understand. He endured it in the past, and he's ready to shoulder that burden for you and for me now, right? And <clears throat> you think about all that, that Jesus experienced in terms of, of suffering. He in addition to just being a human being and knowing hunger and thirst, 
Uh, he knew grief. He knew what it was to lose a loved one. He knew what it was to have people reject you, to have people conspire behind your back. He knew what it was to have your, most, your, your best friends, your most intimate acquaintances betray you. And, and, and not just say nasty things about you, but to betray you to be executed and killed. And not only that, he knew what it was to be completely alone and to endure a suffering that none of us can ever possibly imagine, which is the righteous and holy good wrath of God poured out on human sin. He absorbs that in his body, not for good people, but for sinners like you and like me. And because he did that, because he endured that, he is our great high priest who has ascended into heaven, and he knows. So wherever you are in your life, no matter how painful the grief might be, no matter how isolated you may feel, no matter how much you may think, no one knows what this is like, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Yes. Other thoughts on, on how we can, why we should hold firmly to the faith and approach with boldness because of his high priesthood. Yes, yes. He knows even the things that, that we don't recognize, the weaknesses and the, and, the, and the failures that we don't even acknowledge. And this is so important, and, and I think it will completely transform your posture toward, toward Jesus, um, especially in the midst of hard times, when you realize that he already knows the worst parts about us. There, there's nothing that, that we can hide from him. And, and we probably think, you know, because this is how we operate, we think this person would never like me if they only knew this aspect of my life. If they only knew that thing that I thought or that thing that I did, they would lose all respect for me. Well, Jesus already does. And yet Jesus' heart beats for sinners. His heart beats for sinners. This is why he came that's where he wants to go to work. That's where he wants to heal. And um, as I was preaching on Sunday, the church is the body of Christ. And when there's a foot or a hand or a member of the body that's, that's in pain or hurting, we take care of that, right? We need, it might need to be bandaged up. We need to do something to heal that. Well, that's, that's where Jesus wants to go to work in his body on earth, the church. Yes, sometimes he uses adversity to move you where you want to be, and, and, and you go kicking and screaming, so to speak. You don't want that. You think, no, I want this, and he says, I, that's actually not good for you. I know what's best for you, and um, we're reminded that he disciplines those whom he loves. 
Um, he is good, and, and he works for the good of his people. And, um, but sometimes it, it is very painful to, to get moved. And you think of um, when Jesus calls the Apostle Paul. And we're, this is recorded three times in the book of Acts. Paul, the Pharisee, is persecuting the church. Jesus confronts him. There's a great light. He's blinded. He falls on the ground. And there's a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you hurt my people, when you hurt my body on earth, you're hurting me. When you persecute them, you're persecuting me. That's one thing. But also, he says, why are you kicking against the goads? You're kicking against the goads. And so the imagery is, is having to prod along an animal to get it to move. Um, I hadn't planned to mention this, but we had a um, most unusual visitor to the church this morning. Uh, I was sitting in my office, and I, I turned around, looked out the window, and there was a pig um, sitting right outside my office. And I've seen a lot of things outside my office. Uh, we could go into that later, but this one I have never seen. There's a, there's a pig wandering around. Um, and so... Um, I don't. I want it to get home. I don't. And first, my first thought was, is that a, is it wild? Has it been it been out in the woods? Uh, so I went out. As it turned out, it's, this is a very domesticated pig. She came right up to me. I think she wanted some food. Uh, but I started walking. She started following me, and and she, she. I didn't have to use any prodding or any goading. She just went and and just kind of snorted along. I think she belongs uh, to the the farm over here. Yeah, we've. <laughs> hog instead of a sheep, yeah. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I was fulfilling my role as pastor, shepherd of of sheep, uh, of pigs. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. So <clears throat> Jesus says to Saul at that time, later to become the apostle Paul, "Why are you kicking against the goads?" You think you know what's best for your life. You think you have me in, in a box. You think um, that you're on my team, and I'm trying to move you, and if I have to blind you to get to that point, I'm going to do it. If I have to knock you down on the ground to get you to that point, I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep, keep on prodding you and pricking you until you wake up and realize, okay, Jesus, I'm yours. Speak. I'm listening. Where do you want me to go? Until you are truly surrendered and, and ready. And look at what the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, did through the Apostle Paul. Right. Other thoughts on that? Yeah. Okay, so, okay so, so some people say the Lord helps those who help themselves. Well, you won't find that in the Bible for, for, for reason. That, that's okay. It, it's, you won't find the Bible, but, but people quote it as though you would find it in the Bible, right? They, they think, all right, well, okay, so, and, and another one is um, this idea that um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is Scripture, but people think, I can do all things. 
okay, so God isn't going to give me more than I can handle, so I, I guess he wants me to handle this. But we leave out the in Christ part. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The strength comes from him. And so our part is, is, is not to say, okay, he's taking me this far and then he wants me to do this. No, we need him for the whole race. We need him 24-7, right? And, and so um, that being said, we are to be obedient, we are to respond, but we respond and we're obedient by his strength, if that makes sense. So um, he, he wants us to be dependent on him. Um, we, we think of maturity as, as independence, that <clears throat> like with kids, we eventually hope that our kids are going to not live in the house with us. We want them to be independent. We want them to um, you know, get an education and get a good job and, and be independent and not be dependent on us any longer. Well, with Jesus, it's completely different. He wants his people, he wants you and he wants me to be dependent upon him. He wants us to need him. That's why he came. That's, that's, that's his heartbeat. And, and we, we may think, oh, I don't want to bother Jesus you know, I, I don't want to be a burden to him. He's so busy after all. You think of all the people he's got to deal with. It's not like that at all. And a, another image that I really like from, from this book is if, if you have a child who is suffocating and then <clears throat> you have an oxygen tank to alleviate that suffering, you want that child to suck on that for all it's worth. You don't want the child to be measured or restrained. Or, no, you need this to survive. You need this. You're going to die apart from this. And that's how it is with Jesus. He wants us to go to him, with, with desperation even. This is, this is how he goes to work, as opposed to thinking, I, don't, I may need to tweak this or that in my life. You know, I'm not all that bad, or I, I don't need to trouble him with this, or I'll go to him when, I, when I, it's really bad. No. We're all in desperate straits, um, whether we acknowledge it or not. And this world is in desperate straits. And we, we are continually reminded of that. And, and so the only remedy, the only hope for us and for the world is to go to Jesus because he is the only great high priest who has ascended into heaven. And he is the only one who is fully able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who has been tempted in every way. This is also important when we think about Jesus' earthly life. Um, of course, Jesus performed miracles. Um, he exercised his divine power, to be sure. But the obedience that took him to the cross, the obedience that um, enabled him by the power of the Holy Spirit to endure temptation and not sin, is the same power that's present in every believer. Because we may think, oh, well, of course Jesus didn't sin because he's Jesus, right? No, he's fully human, and he had to depend upon the Holy Spirit just like I do and just like you do. Did you realize that? He came as a man, not as a superman. And so he truly has endured all the weaknesses. He truly has been tempted in every way. Just name it. He knows it. He knows that temptation. All right. Um, following along the lines of temptation. So C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has the image of 
a man walking against the wind. And the man's pressing into the wind, and he's using this as an image of, of the, the push of, of temptation in our lives. And for every human being, eventually, the wind becomes too much, and we have to fall back. We just can't endure it. But this is where Jesus is different. Jesus faces the same headwinds. He pushes into the same struggles and adversity, and yet he keeps going by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is obedient to the Father. And so he is, he's, gone to the, he's gone past that wind. He's, he's past those temptations, and that's what, why he knows and why he's able to sympathize with those of us who are feeling that in the midst of it, and we think we just can't go on. He's been there. He's been there. Another image is if you think of our sin keeping us trapped in a hole that we can't get out of. Uh, anybody seen Homeward Bound? I'm thinking of this, this Homeward Bound movie with these animals, and the, it's, a, it's a great dog movie if you like dogs. Uh, you need to watch Homeward Bounds. Okay. <laughs> All except for your neighbor's dog, yeah. Well, at, at some point, um, what's the old dog? What is his name? Shadow, yeah, Shadow. Anyway, Shadow gets stuck in a hole, and he can't get out, and you think he's not going to make it, and none of the other dogs can help him. Um, he's stuck. Well, being in sin is like that. We are trapped, and it's a muddy climb out of this hole, and we climb, and we climb, and we just slip right back down into the muddy hole. We're trapped. Well, Jesus knows what it's like to be in that hole. He knows what it's like, and yet he emerge out of it. And so he can reach down and save us from our, our trap, from that predicament. And he alone, no one else can pull us out of that hole because he is our great high priest. We may think that um, this kind of goes along with those who, like, we're responsible for helping ourselves we may think that we need, that Jesus is just kind of standing up there uh, in heaven and he gives us a pep talk, pep talk from heaven. He just kind of lobs down, all right, just keep going, you got this. No, he gets down with us in it. And that's why whatever your mess is, and we all have a mess somewhere, right, in, our, you know, in the darkest recesses of our minds, the things that we don't want anybody to know, we all have a mess there, whether we want to admit it or not. Bring it to Jesus. He knows what to do with it. He knows what to do with it. All right. Any other thoughts on those verses? Okay. Let's keep going a little bit into chapter 5. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. So the writer here is, is talking about all priests, all, all high priests. They're all selected from the people, uh, appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. 
and they're all able to deal gently because they know about the weakness. And this is also true of Jesus. Unlike every other high priest, he has no sin to offer a sacrifice for, but like other high priests, he knows human weakness, and so how is he able to deal with the ignorant and those who are going astray? He's able to deal gently. I'd underline that. Deal gently. And this is the only time in the New Testament when that word is used. And we also have a parallel that's, that's a little easier to see in the, the original. Uh, he is able, in 5.2, um, with, in verse 15, the unable, who is unable. It's the same root word. So he, he's not unable. He is able to sympathize, and he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Meaning, his first response is not to shame or to scold, to scowl, to get down on you. How could you do this again? You blew it again, right? As I might be tempted to do with my own sons. Um, he's not like that. He's not like that. He wants us to come to him, not so that we can, not to say, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it. it it's, it's fine. No, okay, let me help you. I know how to deal with this. I came to save. I came to heal. I came to redeem. So give me your mess. I want to help you stop being stuck in that mess. Don't try to keep it from me. I already know about it. Give it to me. But his response is, yes, I, this, this is what makes Jesus happy. Bring that to me. Trust me to save. Trust me to heal. This gives him joy. This enlarges his joy. This is this is what makes the heart of Jesus beat. He knows our sinfulness. He knows your sinfulness and my sinfulness better than we do. Trust him to know what to do, to deal gently. And who are those he deals gently with? Those who are ignorant and are going astray. And the writer, in using these two words, he's not talking about people who sin more or sin less. He, He's talking about those who sin by accident and those who sin deliberately. And this is very clear when you read in the Old Testament. The Old Testament accounts for both accidental sins and deliberate sins. There are some sins where if the, axe, the head of your axe flies off when you're swinging it and it kills somebody, okay, you're still responsible for that, but the punishment isn't as severe as if you actually swung the axe to kill your neighbor, Right? So the Old Testament accounts for that, and so he's able to deal gently with those who sin out of ignorance, accidentally, those who are sinning, and we all do this. We're, we're sinners when we don't even know it. Um, there's a pretty superficial, shallow view of sin that, that says that we only sin when we deliberately sin. We know we're doing something wrong. Oh, no, we sin all the time in ignorance, Right? Well, he's able to deal gently with those who sin in ignorance, and he's able to deal gently with those who deliberately go astray, who deliberately choose their own way, who say, I know better than you. I would rather be in control of my life. I can be my own God. Deliberately going astray. And he can and he does deal gently with such people. Deal gently. He 
doesn't stiff arm us. He doesn't push us off. He doesn't shame us. How could you, how could you do this again? How many times are we going to be through this? No, he says, come and be healed and be saved. Let's look at one other passage in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Beginning at verse 1. He's just been naming all these saints of the Old Testament who have lived by faith. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us throw off everything that's hindering us and entangle us. And, and instead, as we read in, in Hebrews four sixteen, go boldly to the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. And we do this as we're running the race. We don't look down at our feet. We don't look up at the sky. We look at Jesus who's gone ahead of us. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him endured the cross. What makes Jesus happy? What gives him joy? Saving sinners, seeing his people redeemed. This is the joy set before Jesus that, that empowered him to endure the cross, to scorn its shame, to know he's not dying in vain. He's not enduring the Father's wrath in vain. He's dying so that sinners like you and like me might be saved might know eternal life. That's the joy set before him, the glory that awaits him and the glory that awaits all those who put their trust in him and who can look forward to his presence. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So when you're down, when you feel like Life doesn't make sense. When you think there's no one that understands, when you think this is it, remember the one who endured such opposition and let that strengthen you. Remember the joy, the joy of seeing you saved. Make it very personal. The joy of seeing you saved is what Allow Christ to endure the cross. That's why he came. Any thoughts or questions on, on these verses? So let me ask you this. Um, what, 
What keeps us from approaching the throne of grace with boldness? What keeps us entangled and ensnared? What keeps us from fixing our eyes on Jesus when we're enduring opposition? Say what? It am us. Can you elaborate? <laughs> what we we yeah we we're the ones we keep ourselves right. It, there's no there's no shortcoming on Jesus' end. There's no unwillingness on His end. It's on us. anger? Why, why is this happening? How could this person do that thing? How could they say that? Yeah, yeah. Why now? Shame, the shame. There is no way that Jesus, who is holy and righteous and without sin, there's no way that someone like that could embrace someone like me after what I've done. Yeah, uh, we, we're afraid that <clears throat> he wants to be judgmental, he wants to punish us, that keeps us, sin makes us want to hide, and, and you think of Adam and Eve, uh, Genesis 3, where are you, <laughs> says God, where are you, right, and they're hiding, they're hiding, they think there's no way that we can be in his presence, what have you done, yeah, and God knows what to do when they when they emerge, he knows how to, um, to save. Anything else that keeps us? No, no, let's go back to Adam and Eve. So she saw the fruit and it looked good. <laughs> you know, ne never, never mind what God said about it, it looked good. And, and this, is, this is the nature of, of sin. And, and this, is, um, this is a major tactic that our enemy uses to get us to stumble, um, is to lead us to only focus on the short-term consequences is it pleasurable and not think about the long-term consequences and the shame and the, and the isolation that, that results on the other side? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, that's, that's, what, the, that's what the enemy says, absolutely. 
Um, so here's, here's what, what we're called to do, is to fix our eyes on Jesus, on our high priest. As long as we fixate on our sin, as long as we fixate on our suffering, on what we've done, on, on why is this happening to me, we will always be in danger. We'll never feel safe. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus and trust that he can and he will save, then we don't ever have to fear danger. Um, whatever it is, no matter what we've done, no matter what we're passing through, he is powerful to save. That's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We know where that comes from. Um, I I hope this is this is helpful. I want to want to end with this. Uh, This is a a quotation from someone named Benjamin Grosvenor, who's a, a pastor, and he's speaking as as Jesus here and. I thought these, these words were powerful. Jesus says, If you meet that poor wretch that thrust the spear into my side, tell him there is another way, a better way of coming at my heart. If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced and will mourn, I will cherish him in that very bosom he has wounded. He shall find the blood he shed an ample atonement, an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me, he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. Go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for showing us your heart. I pray that you would forgive us for when we take your heart for granted, when we twist it into something it is not, when we think that there is a shortcoming on your end, when we think that there's an unwillingness on your part to save. Lord, forgive us. I pray that you would sweep away all of those delusions, all of those lies that we have concocted and invented, and that you would replace those lies with the truth that you are a God who saves. And you have proven this by sending your one and only Son to do for us what we can never do for ourselves to die on the cross for our sins, to absorb your just wrath against our sinfulness, and to be raised to eternal life so that all those who put their trust in Jesus, all those who fix their eyes on him, all those who bring their wounds, their hurts, their messes to him might know peace and joy and love, salvation and eternal life. Lord, may we know those those precious, precious gifts today. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.